Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 10, A Long Year. Last time, we left off with a discussion of the Bosnian annexation crisis of 1908-1909, which ended with another humiliating blow to the disgruntled Russians when St. Petersburg was forced to submit and abandon their Serbian allies in the face of Austrian and German intimidation. After the dust had settled, many European leaders were keen to notice that the falling out between St. Petersburg and Vienna would eventually lead to dire consequences for the Balkans. Charles Harding, the head of the British Foreign Office, was one such statesman who believed that with Austrian and Russian relations now on the knife's edge, then the Balkans would never again boast the same level of stability it had enjoyed over the last decade. While in Vienna and Berlin, there was a feeling that the annexation dispute had been the stress test that Europe required in order to determine the durability of the alliance system. Due to Izvolsky's backdoor dealings with Herenthal in September of 1908, Russia's Entente allies were able to justify non-intervention, even when it appeared Russia was on the path of war following the Serbian mobilization. But in the end, it was this non-intervention which eventually allowed for diplomacy to again take command. Had London or Paris given St. Petersburg a military pledge of support, the starting date of the First World War could very well have been March of 1909, as it no doubt would have astronomically raised the tensions in the spring of that year. But that did not happen, and the balance of power had been secured, and the statesmen of Europe could tip their hat to the truth that war had been avoided yet again. Although in 1909, the price of stability would only secure peace for another few years. For this week, I thought it would be interesting to take a bit of a detour from what I had originally planned. Initially, I was going to dedicate this episode to an examination of the second Moroccan crisis in 1911, when the Germans would again attempt to drive a wedge between the Entente powers by again stirring up trouble over French claims in Morocco. But as I was researching, I came to the conclusion that the second Moroccan crisis pretty much plays out in the same fashion as the previous dispute in 1906. The French attempt to assert their rule, the Germans protest claiming their economic privileges in the Moroccan State Bank, and again we end up with another conference which leaves neither the French or Germans entirely satisfied with the outcome. So instead of putting out another episode which would frankly be a rehash of episode 8, I wanted to take this opportunity to address one of the more misunderstood and misinterpreted histories of the First World War, the Italians. I had a number of reasons for doing this. The first is that we have barely mentioned the Italians at all up to this point, so it is high time we address what they're up to in the years prior to 1914. Secondly, I want to help shed some light on many of the criticisms aimed at Italian diplomacy, which has often been characterized as morally weak and manipulative, since the Italians would not end up entering the war until 1915, but on the side of the Entente and against their German and Austro-Hungarian allies. My final reason is that it was Italian action in 1911-1912 which would encourage the Balkan states, Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Greece to attack the Ottoman holdings in southern Europe in October of 1912, leading to the two Balkan wars which would last until August of the following year. The Balkan wars would pretty much set the board up for July of 1914, as tempers would run high and the successes of Serbia would further fuel nationalist uprisings against the Austro-Hungarians. But all that came as a result of Italian ambitions. In October of 1911, encouraged by dreams of glory and haunted by past failures, the Italians would attack the Ottoman province of Libya, and despite modern weaponry and superior numbers, 
the Italian forces would be unable to break out from the coastline, and a standoff would expose their armed forces as being completely unprepared for a general European war. The desert debacle would convince many in Rome, including Prime Minister Giovanni Giolitti, to opt for neutrality during the crisis of July of 1914. By the 20th century, Italy was considered a great power, but in name only. The Kingdom of Italy, as it was known at the time, had achieved unification in 1861, through the efforts of charismatic leaders Camillo Cavour and Giuseppe Garibaldi, who along with support from the French, booted the Austrians from the peninsula which allowed the various provinces and independent kingdoms to unite under a single monarch. During the colonial race for Africa, they had grabbed holdings in Eritrea and Somalia, but these holdings were of little value when compared to the bigger cash cows like Egypt, Algeria, or South Africa. Although the Italians had gotten in on the colonial game, they had only really done so so they could have something to show on a map, because Italy was internally plagued with social and cultural discourses. It lagged behind all the other powers in industrial production, while most of the population were illiterate and remained tied to the land in rural communities. On top of that, Italy, like France, was deeply divided. Italians from the north remained suspicious of those in the south, and vice versa. Unification had been a much more grueling process than it had been for the Germans, and was always a hotly contested issue among the general population. But Italians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were always reminded of the legacy of the great Roman Empire. Nationalists, such as Cavour and Garibaldi, had invoked the legacy of Augustus's empire as the ultimate symbol of what a unified Italy could achieve. Although the Italian navy had maintained a fairly respectable presence in the Mediterranean, its armed forces lacked the military credibility which could help boost it into the upper echelon of the European powers. An attempt to build an empire in East Africa had resulted in a humiliating defeat after Ethiopian forces expelled an exhausted Italian army in March of 1896, and since then, leaders in Rome had been haunted by the memory of African expeditions. But by 1908, a resurgency of Italian nationalism, coinciding with the approaching half-century celebrations, had led many to re-examine the African failures of the past, and attempt to shake off the legacy by reopening discussion of further expansion into Africa. The most enticing prospect for Italian expansion was Libya, namely the two provinces of Tripolitania and Cyrenaica, which in 1910 remained under control of the Ottoman Turks. Italian designs to acquire Libya had actually been in the works since the late 1880s, but had come to the forefront after Tunisia and Algeria had been snapped up by the French. By 1910, the Italian Prime Minister Giovanni Giolitti and Foreign Minister Antonio San Giuliano had begun to lay the groundwork for their claim to the North African country. Between 1900 and 1909, they had come to terms with the French, British, and Russians to secure recognition of Rome's claim. This meant that unlike the double French case over Morocco, the Entente would have no grounds to base a protest of the move. The big push to put the plans into motion came following the Austrian annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which had enraged the Italian king Emmanuel III, who felt that Ehrenthal's policies threatened overall Balkan stability, which could, as you might expect, pose a direct threat to Italian interests due to their geographic proximity. Their goal in taking Libya was twofold. 1. Libya represented a wealth of natural resources, which could be used to help boost the minimal Italian industrial sector, while the second was to find a place for the Italian emigrants who were packing their bags and heading off for better opportunities in North America or elsewhere throughout Europe. 
But Giletti and San Giuliano were smart, because they were not looking to outright snatch Libya from Constantinople. On the advice of War Minister General Paolo Spingardi, the objective was to land a force on the coasts of Tripoli and Cyrenaica, occupy the ports, and convince the Ottoman Sultan to recognize Italian sovereignty. Similar to the situation in Bosnia and Herzegovina following the Berlin Congress, in which the Austrians were left to run the day-to-day operations of the country while it still remained part of the Ottoman Empire. So in other words, Giletti and Giuliano were hoping for a quick occupation, which meant that only a medium-sized expeditionary force of some 37,000 men would be required. They had instructed the chief of staff, General Alberto Puglio, that the main goal of the Italian fleet would be to intimidate the Turkish garrisons through a show of force, and convince them to surrender without having to engage in any full-fledged battles on the ground. The presence of a small Italian force would also have a reassuring quality to the other European powers, who although recognizing the Italian interests, were completely unwilling to see a conflict over Libya drag out, as it could hasten the much-feared collapse of Ottoman imperialism. The pretext for the declaration of war came on September 29, 1911, when Rome decided that the young Turks in Constantinople presented a threat to a handful of Italian Catholic missionaries already in Libya. Now this may sound completely ridiculous, and you are right in thinking that, because it was just a chumped-up charge. But when Constantinople rightly refused the ultimatum, it gave Rome the justification for war. That was just how diplomacy worked in those days. Beginning on October the 4th, Italian warships under the command of Admiral Luigi Farvelli began to bombard the ports at Tobruk and Tripoli. And on October the 11th, troops commanded by General Carlo Cavera disembarked along the coastline. Within three weeks, Cavera's forces had secured the key ports of Tobruk, Tripoli, Derna, Holmes, and Benghazi. There is a map on the Great War Podcast.podbean.com to give you a better idea of where these places are. The first three weeks of the war cannot have gone more in Italian favor. Troops had disembarked and had met barely any opposition because the Ottomans had been caught napping and were actually pretty surprised that the Italians had actually gone through with it. The Ottoman Grand Vizier, Said Pasha, who was the Turkish equivalent to a European Prime Minister, had suspected Italian intentions for some time. It had been no secret in Constantinople that Rome was actively seeking to make a claim for Libya but the vizier and war minister Muhammad Shirket had always assumed their good relationship with Germany would be enough to keep the Italians at bay. Even after Constantinople had refused the ultimatum on September the 29th, the Turks had always been able to leverage Berlin by throwing a wrench into the Kaiser's dreams of a Berlin to Baghdad railway, which would give Germany the leg up on oil reserves in central Persia. But when news arrived of the Italian bombardment on October the 4th, Pasha and Shirket realized that they were now in a do-or-die situation. The Grand Vizier and War Minister were eager to seek a peace with the Italians because they thought it would only be a matter of time before they started rolling through the Libyan interior. But they met opposition from the military, namely by a young Turk commander named Edward Bey, who, understanding their precarious position, requested the authority to arm and train local Arab and Berber tribes to form a local militia to harass Kavera's lines. Although Constantinople approved of Bey's wishes, the Turks recognized the losing situation. On top of the already tense situation in the Balkans, the Libyan question was further compounded by a brutal rebellion which had been occurring on and off again in Yemen since 1906. The rebellion in Yemen was consuming more men and resources than the ministers had previously predicted, 
and fearing that refusing peace could result in further destruction, Said Pasha offered terms. Now the terms offered by the Turks were pretty much in line with what the Italians had been hoping for since the beginning. They were willing to let Italy gain control of the coastal ports of Tripolitania and Cyrenaica, in exchange that the Ottoman Sultan, who was also seen as a caliph for all of Islam, be allowed to remain as a figurehead monarch in the province. Basically, it was the same deal the Austro-Hungarians had been granted during the 1879 Berlin Congress. In other words, this was the same peace which Giolitti and Giuliano had been hoping for. However, when terms of the Turkish peace arrived, the Italian Prime Minister had done a 180. Following on the successes of the invasion, Giolitti had been pressured from the various imperialists in Rome to change the aims of the expedition, and instead of gaining sovereignty in Tripolitania and Cyrenaica as originally planned, Italy should demand outright annexation of all of Libya. In a speech in turn on the 13th of October, Giolitti announced that the war in Libya would only come to an end after the Sultan abdicated all of Libya over to Rome, with no concessions going the other way. Now this is a pretty curious development, but it does reflect the political course which Giolitti had built his entire career on. He, like Bismarck, was a master of being able to curb the enthusiasm of extreme left and right politics in order to secure his own objectives and maintain a stable central government. Imperialists argued that if the Turks were unwilling to fight, it would be a wasted opportunity not to try and squeeze some more advantageous terms. Not to mention, the mood in Italian cities were fairly in line with this train of thought. If the war had gone so well for them up to this point, then accepting anything other than full Turk capitulation would be an embarrassment, and if Italy wanted to be considered a great power in the eyes of Europe, then it could not settle for a meager peace. They had the Turks on the ropes, so they might as well keep hitting until they throw in the towel. But this change of policy had the opposite effect of Giolitti's intention because now, the Italian army in Libya was facing the prospect of a prolonged standoff in the desert. Remember, they had planned for a quick occupation, and are not equipped for an extended campaign. But General Caveira was not as surprised as you might think. He had been convinced that due to meager Ottoman resistance, the standoff would only last another couple weeks at the most. But the reality was that his army was now stuck in a hostile desert without proper logistics or intelligence to conduct an extended desert campaign in which the weather, climate, and most importantly, hygiene, all take on much more important roles. But when the Ottoman war minister, Shirkat, received word that Rome had refused the intended peace, it gave the Turks a huge boost. Because just the brief pause had given the Turks and Enver Bey more time to train the local militias. On October 23rd, a Turkish-led force consisting of Arab and Berber tribesmen launched a surprise raid on the Italian nine near Tripoli, killing nearly 500 Italian soldiers in the process. The raid was an absolute shock, and signified to both Rome and Constantinople that Ottoman resistance was still a viable threat. In response, the Italians began to send reinforcements, and by November 1911, the standoff began to escalate. In Rome, Giolitti decided to put pressure on the Turks, and instead of retreating from his demand for full annexation, urged the king, Emmanuel III, to declare that they were no longer waiting for the Turks to capitulate, and went ahead declaring that Libya was now under Italian sovereignty on November the 11th. The Prime Minister understood that the situation in the desert was beginning to deteriorate, but he was now coming under intense pressure from the British, Germans, and French, 
who, having finally settled the Moroccan dispute, were now able to turn their attention to events in Libya. Joliti and Foreign Minister Giuliano were worried that if they did not attempt to bring the war to a conclusion, then the European powers might be enticed to step in, which in their minds would have been just as humiliating as if the Turks managed to throw them back into the sea. Joliti's claim for Italian sovereignty was another turning point in the war effort, because just a week prior, the Turks had finally reached an agreement with the rebels in Yemen, and with the declaration from Rome, the young Turks in Constantinople had no choice but to dig in. You'll recall from last week that the young Turks had come to see European encroachment into Ottoman territory as a major contributing factor to the empire's decline, and were currently in the process of trying to re-Ottomanize the various imperial holdings. But now, if the Grand Vizier signed away Libya, it would be a direct front to everything the young Turks were trying to eliminate. Pasha, following a meeting with the Sultan in December 1911, claimed that signing Libya over to the European invaders would be akin to self-decapitation. The standoff in the desert would continue until October of 1912. Kaver's troops had not been trained nor equipped for a prolonged desert campaign, and with increasing Ottoman resistance, more materials and men were sent to Libya. For 1912 alone, the war took up over 45% of the Italian state budget, and the number of troops on the ground swelled to nearly 100,000. But due to complete logistical breakdowns, were unable to advance from their positions first grabbed in October of 1911. But the Italians at least had the benefit of fighting a defensive war, and could reinforce their lines and simply wait for the Turks to attack. And attack they did. Assaults on Tripoli, Tobruk, and Derna were poorly led frontal charges which left thousands of Ottoman soldiers dead, as the Dungan Italians, armed with machine guns and heavy artillery, cut down the attacking troops. During the campaign, the Italians also employed the use of aircraft and zeppelins to both bombard and recon enemy positions beyond the front line. Although they were not in widespread use, this fact does mark the first time aviation was used as a military weapon, a new tactic which would become more widespread throughout the First World War. But the Italian command was not simply waiting for the Turks to exhaust themselves, and were actively seeking to punch holes in the Ottoman frontiers elsewhere. In December 1911, Italian warships bombarded the port in Beirut, hoping to spark the Yemeni into further rebellion, and in April and May 1912, Italian forces opened a separate campaign near the Dardanelles and invaded the Greek island of Rhodes. The Italian campaign on the Dardanelles was a particular blunder because Constantinople closed the straits to all naval traffic, which enraged the already impatient Russians and British who applied more pressure on Rome to bring an end to the hostilities. The standoff between the Italians and Turks would finally come to an end by October 1912, when trouble in the Balkans would force the Turks to sue for peace. Despite the long campaign and a combined total of nearly 16,000 casualties, the post-war settlement was essentially the same terms that were initially the goal of the Italian expedition. The negotiations took place in the Swiss city of Ochi, on the edge of Lake Geneva, and it turned out that both belligerents were just as eager to reach an acceptable peace. In the end, the Italians finally got full sovereignty rights in Libya, but were forced to pay an indemnity of some 2 million liras annually over the next three years, which I tend to believe was a caveat the great powers imposed in order to keep the Ottoman lungs drawing breath. Although Libya was now under Italian domain, the Italians would not receive international recognition of their newly acquired territory until after the First World War, 
because from October 1912, Europe would be focused on disturbing news unfolding in the Balkans. The Italo-Turkish War of 1911-1912 goes a long way in explaining why the Italians would remain neutral in July of 1914. The insane fact that an army of 100,000 troops armed with modern weaponry could not break away from the Libyan coast was an undeniable sign that the Italian army was in no way prepared for a conflict in Europe. The Libyan expedition had cost Italy nearly 4,000 dead, and the war effort had nearly bankrupted the state treasury, and these were ominous indications that the Italian casualties in a showdown against Russian or French troops would be too appalling to accept. But the exposure of the armed forces coincided with the deterioration in their relationship with the Austrians. With their troops bogged down in the desert, Conrad von Hutzendorf was enraged when he heard of the Italian attack near the Dardanelles, because he feared it would entice the already agitated Serbs into further aggressive moves against Vienna. Although Hutzendorf would be right in that prediction, the Austrian chief of staff began to float the idea of a preemptive strike against Italy from the north. Now this may sound crazy, but he was not alone in arguing for this course of action. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand had equally been enticed to deal a damaging blow to the Italians, whom they had always suspected as being untrustworthy and dubious since Italian unification had come at the expense of the Austrian Empire in the 1860s. The relationship between Vienna and Rome is a peculiar one, and is an area which has garnered more attention over the last decade or so. To put it simply, the Italians and Austrians simply hated each other. The late William Renzi, a former professor of history at the University of Wisconsin, argued that the tension between the two capitals could at times be so coarse that the only thing which kept them from punching each other in the face were the Germans, whose steel production was fueling the armaments industry of both junior alliance partners. So in looking at it in this light, the Triple Alliance was actually just as racked with divisions as the Entente, with Berlin in the middle trying to keep Rome and Vienna at arm's length from the other. So through this context, we can see that Italy was between a rock and a hard place. Ironically, the most ferocious critic of Giolitti's government was the great Italian historian Luigi Albertini, who, like Fritz Fischer, forms the bedrock for much of the historiography surrounding the causes of the First World War. Albertini's contribution came in the Mammoth three-volume essay, The Origins of the War of 1914, which was first published in English in 1853. In the work, he argued that Italy had slunk into neutrality through the back door, by making half-hearted commitments only to cower when its alliance partners presented the tab. Unfortunately, this image of a bipolar Italy has remained an enduring legacy, no doubt further propelled by the rebout face in the Second World War, but it fails to address the fact that the country was always in a precarious position. It enjoyed the then-dual alliance of Germany and Austria-Hungary in 1882 because it made sense geographically. And since then, Berlin had done quite a bit to boost the Italian industrial sector. But with Giolitti's agreements with the British, French, and Russians prior to the Libyan expedition, even the Germans, who enjoyed more cordial relations with the Italians than the Austrians had, begun to write them off as dependable allies. Whenever a crisis would unfold, such as the Moroccan, Bosnian, or the what in July 1914, neither the Austrians or Germans consulted with the Italians over a course of action. Giolitti was smart enough to realize that he if aligned Italy too close with his senior allies, then he would be submitting his country into a subordinate role, and the ability to determine its own foreign policy would be severely hampered. And that was something great powers simply did not do. 
but at the same time, Italy cannot simply jump ship to the Entente, because it would then find itself isolated and surrounded by some very pissed off people in Vienna and Berlin, which would make any sort of military assistance from the British, French, or Russians much more trickier to navigate. The Italian war against the Ottomans is often overshadowed by the Balkan Wars, which would be unleashed just as the ink was beginning to dry on the peace agreements. But the war in Libya was the first of several conflicts which would consume the efforts of the great powers. From 1912 to 1913, guns in the Balkans would be going off, as the Serbs, Montenegrins, Bulgarians, and Greeks, encouraged from the Italian invasion, would attack the Ottoman holdings in southern Europe. Next week, we'll look at how the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913 left the chessboard set up for events in the following summer. Because, just a year after peace in the Balkans had been achieved, an Austrian Archduke will make a visit to the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo, and a few shots from an assassin's pistol would turn out to be the loudest of them all. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you next week.